0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a returning episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. It's your host, Samaj McDowell, and I'm back. I am back again um, after taking a brief, well, it wasn't brief, uh, but taking a hiatus and dealing with some, some things pertaining to school and a few other things, but I'm glad to be back and looking forward to talking about a lot of trends and, and current geopolitical and geoeconomic um, events first and foremost i want to send my heart condolences prayers over uh, to india who's battling um, i mean a, a truly um, hurtful and a painful fight with with covid as they're nearing 20 million cases and in Delhi alone, there's one death uh, per four minutes uh, from COVID. To running out of oxygen and the lack of federal and state or dialogue, cooperation, coordination—um, their their handling of, of COVID has been truly, uh, truly a travesty. Um, so with that, I do want to get down to starting up. Uh, a series on here called Uncovering the Chinese Strategy, um, doing a deeper evaluation of essentially geoeconomic warfare in the 21st century. Um, there's not a lot of uh, evaluation or really dialogue going on on looking at a co- the comprehensive Chinese strategy um, that Beijing had put, has been continuously pushing forward um, at, at the beginning of. 21st century, and then once Xi Jinping became president, has really accelerated their position as a as a not just a peer competitor to the United States, but one of parity and strength, political, economic, financial, or military or strength. And it's one that the United States has never really been confronted with in its history. Where we get a lot of our calculations wrong when it comes to China is that we try to look at the, Republic, the People's Republic of China and the contemporary a light we look at China as It's its current modern capabilities um, a Lot of times but I mean that comes from the simple fact that you know China doesn't really release a lot of really accurate let alone information in general um, about you know, the government plans and uh, their initiatives their agendas and grand strategy But, in order to really understand the the China dream, what Xi Jinping um, has coined it, the the 2049, the 2050 goal of the Chinese government in celebrating uh, the 100th year uh, anniversary of the formation of the People's Republic of China, as well as the 100th anniversary of the formation of CPC um with that it's important to understand that the united states is fighting a different war we're fighting this this war of ideas but they're doing it completely wrong uh we do, we do it on base of the notion of continual reliance of our armed forces which has been a trend really, since the, the militarization surge of Ronald Reagan and then the boost of confidence after the first Gulf War. But prior to Ronald Reagan, prior even prior to Woodrow Wilson's uh, 14 points as incorporated in the Treaty of Versailles, the United States has been known for its neutral base policies, um, primarily for the purposes of controlling uh, markets looking to saturate markets with american goods and a foreign policy based off of geoeconomic principles uh, in order to you know maximize affluence and wealth potential and really solidify the position of the united states which it did eventually before uh, the year 1900 as a true um potential you know hegemonic power china has essentially done the same exact thing um when Deng uh, Xiaoping became president in right, 1979, 1980, um, China prioritizes its economic development, its financial development, economic financial socioeconomic reconstruction, um, because there is an underlying notion that in order to reverse the century of humiliation, essentially the the 19th century, they had China they. The Chinese people had to essentially have the economic and financial prowess uh, in order to overcome the economic might of those who perpetuated uh, the century of humiliation. And that includes not just Russia, um, but also the United Kingdom, um, the United States, France, um, Portugal, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, But this is not a new phenomenon. It was new for us in the West because we're now finally trying to pay attention to Chinese strategic mindsets. But the Chinese, because they play a patient game, this reality of wanting to essentially construct or produce a China dream uh, where China, whether or not they wanted to admit it, China as the global hegemonic power, um, this is... A phenomenon that goes back to the the end of the century humiliation, the eighteen nineties. Uh, Chinese strategy, at least the overarching political, socio economic, uh, military, uh, kind of foundational apparatus to their to their strategy, comes from three people in particular, and it's really important to kind of know who they are in order to start the processes of figuring out the overall strategies of China. Uh, so with that, we have to look at these three people. Sun Yat-sen, Ding, uh, Sun Yat-sen, Mao Zedong, and Ding Xiaoping, in that order. Um, Mao Zedong, although he was a communist, he still looked at Sun Yat-sen, who was essentially a a Chinese nationalist in a way. He was a neutral Chinese uh, nationalist. He didn't really pick a side during the times of the Civil War. um, But Sun Yat-sen is equivalent to America's uh, George Washington. Uh, And after Mao Zedong, you had Deng Xiaoping, and Deng Xiaoping was influenced both by Mao Zedong and Sun Yat-sen. And then he established his policies, uh, which kind of propelled the overall underlying um, strategy from Deng Xiaoping um, to now Xi uh, Jinping. So Sun Yat-sen, Sun Yat-sen goes back to the 1890s, Um, and 1894 in particular, he had put a national reform agenda out, where essentially he believed that China, in order for China to become to become a nation uh, where people are able to really thrive, they had to have their talents put to best use, where the land as well as put to best use where Assets are put to best use and where goods um, can be distributed. So, just from that understanding, there's a much more geoeconomic understanding of how to increase China's power rather than it being solely geopolitical, which it still is at the end of the day, it's geoeconomic and geopolitical. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, this is much more ingrained in putting emphasis and priorities on the notions of economic growth, financial growth, in order to then be transformed into political and military uh, capabilities, to then eventually uh, be able to confront and remove uh, their, their adversary, which at that point were the countries that participated in the century of humiliation. Um, so with that, he created a notions of the, the three principles of the people, uh, which essentially was a nationalistic understanding um, that it would allow China basically to essentially leapfrog past Europe as well as America um, through the, the three principles of the, of the people. Uh, Sun Yat-sen had this notion of the six upmosts and the four mosts, which is essentially, there are ten different goals. Um, The four most that China had to have, that China has to have the the most strength, the most wealth, the most uncorrupt and just government. (laughs) Asterisk on that. (laughs) Um, The happiest citizens in the world also going to put an asterisk on that. Uh, And the six upmosts. The utmost size, the utmost excellence, the utmost progress, the utmost dignity, the utmost wealth, and the utmost security and happiness. Um, through this, China is able to advocate for peace and harmony while ensuring the greatest possible happiness for everyone on Earth. That's the difference. Well, it's not a difference, but it's really, there's a lot of similarities between the mentalities of early on in the United States and China's ideology, where Upon the foundation of the United States, there was this belief that the United States-based Republican sort of government, a representative democracy, would essentially become a blueprint for the entirety of the world and become happy. That there would be a bastion of freedom of liberty, pursuit of happiness, um, ownership of private property, things of that nature. China has essentially the same understanding. Theirs go back thousands of years since they, you know, they consider themselves as the, as the celestial kingdom, the middle kingdom. Um, but you really see in the writings of Sun Yat-sen that China that the world prospers from China being uh, the top dog, essentially, and um, calling the shots. Um, that kind of goes back to the Sun Yat-sen's three principles of the people. Uh, is based off of the the, his, the history, the at least the, the record history of the Chinese people going back five six thousand years. Um, Think Egypt goes back to eight thousand, um, but the three principles of the people is essentially a call for nationalistic pride. Excuse me, uh, for China to essentially uplift itself from the poverty, from the instability that was going on at that time in the eighteen nineties, um, especially when it came to the the Meiji uh, re- reformations and you know industrialization of Japan at the time. Um, this is something that they were observing that Japan was a very agrarian, um, feudal country. And then once the Meiji's came around, it essentially developed itself into that of a, a peer competitor to the European powers. So, for Sun by using history as proof of China's historical accomplishments, achievements, inventions, and acclamations, that china represents the best people in the world and that it has the potential to surpass that of japan and the west collectively and that the only way that china will become the world's leading nation is once it opens it, its doors to foreign ideas and policies and learn from the mistakes of other nations to then be incorporated within china that was china's policies to the soviet union starting in 1949, uh, to the United States, starting in 1972, to the world, once it joined the World Trading Organization. And that if China wanted to industrialize and essentially become the beating heart of the world, it had to open up to the West. And that was its only choice. This wasn't a Deng Xiaoping idea. This goes back to Sun Yat-sen in the 1890s. So this was, this was a meticulous plan from over 100 years ago. So Yasin believed that by using Japan's methods of liberalism and, and openness, that and this is his projections back then, that within three to five years, China will be ten times stronger than Japan. That China wants to build up its industry but it lacked the proper capital, the proper talent, the the basic understandings, at least in the modern sense of accumulation of foreign direct investment. but Yat-su knew that all of that can be imported that if the methods that they were not implementing within China domestically, the methods that they were producing domestically, if they failed, then they could just look abroad and adopt those mechanisms to then propel China into a better position. We we see that now. But this was a gradual uh, process. This Three principles of the people we just kind of talked about was then followed by Mao, Mao Zedong's sinification of Marxism, but then also Deng Xiaoping's doctrine of Chinese characteristics, socialism with Chinese characteristics. This is where that comes from. That you know. Uh, Sun Yat-sen's Three Principles of the People, Mao Zedong's Signification of Marxism, and Deng Xiaoping's Doctrine of Chinese Characteristics, they all come from this notion that China needs to be revived through innovation in a uniquely Chinese way in order to lead the world, essentially. that they ha- China had to be very cooperative in the world in order to become militarily dominant. That if equal powers are, are going to scramble for power in geostrategic areas and regions, peace not only is impossible, but also a strong military is needed. So, you know, since stated that if a country is not founded on military strength, it cannot be founded at all. So, then we're kind of seeing that this isn't a lot of people try to bring. Geoeconomics is a notion of mercantilism. That's not the case. Mercantilism is military first, economic second. What China is doing is the exact opposite: economic first, military second. Mercantilism is that we have this massive military force. We're going to go to this particular geographic space. We're going to essentially seize the economic assets to then be utilized into our economic growth, so that they, that then could be redistributed to enhance our military, but also be utilized for, you know, Tokyo economics. China's going the opposite way. And we see that now through the the Belt and Road Initiative where we're going to increase our economic footprint, our provide, you know, ensure that other countries are able to become financially dependent upon our manufactured goods, upon our 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 loans and the access to their resources that we acquire will then utilize that to further maintain our manufacturing or economic production growth. And a percentage of that will also go towards our military development to achieve, to achieve parity with the United States and to have a globally recognized advanced military force so that we can then supplant our influences and our presence and geostrategic. Uh, regions, which is primarily going to be, will have to be looked at geoeconomically, especially in the twenty first century, where sovereign borders don't really necessarily mean much, and there's much more emphasis on transnational corporations and maritime trade routes. Um, with that being said, we kind of see that you know Xi Jinping indicated that you know as the the, the global economy is going to the east, China must then pivot to the west. In order to capture that that global pivot, and then essentially bring it to uh, to China, so you know, essentially had the same thing, had the same understanding that China has to leverage itself to where not only China makes up for its subjugation, but also it leads. That 2,000 or so years ago, China not only dominated Asia through trade, so you're talking about like the Silk Road, but it also threatened the concept of Europe. Now granted, the concept of Europe wasn't really formed to like the 4th century, but for today's terms, we're going to look at, we're just going to look at the space of what that constitute as Europe. So through trade, uh China had directly threatened um Europe. Um, because of that, he kind of goes in to talk about how a lot of countries saw China as a very rich country and territory and its resources, which it is with massive commercial markets. Um, but because it has these massive commercial markets, it, uh, it unfortunately had a, a weak military and a passive culture. That passive culture kind of comes from the inherited Confucian, um, Neo-Confucian legalism um, understandings. Um, over thousands of years and truly enough the Chinese military was relatively weak um, in comparison to the European powers at that time of the European and American military forces at that time um, you can kind of understand that in order for China to kind of ensure that it is no longer insecure it has to bolster a military force that is either on parity or It is much more advanced than the most advanced military at the time. So for Sun Yat-sen, he proposed in around 1912 uh, military reform, essentially. Um, And he stated that today and in the future, we look forward to every one of you becoming fine soldiers, learning military affairs, and becoming the men who who teach 40 million of your countrymen the art of war. Sun so Yat-sen wanted China in 1912 to have a standing army of 40 million people, 10 percent of its population at that time was about 400 million. He wanted China to have a 40 man, a 40 million man army to essentially demonstrate to the world that China is truly a military power. He wanted a, a national defense of 40 million men and a national defense engineering corps of 10 million. He also he firmly believed that if China could not learn from the United States, that it will not be able to surpass the United States. So this Cold War mentality—I I know a lot of people nowadays like to say that we're not in a Cold War. I like to call it BS on that, and if people can't see that, then that's un, that's unfortunate. China has been in a Cold War with the United States and the West since the 1800s. You just now figure quote unquote discovering or figuring that out that we are in this cold war of ideals uh, with with china so Yansen you know, argued that china is equal to the united states in its territory which it is give or take and its resources Uh as debatable as far as resources but as far as actual geographic landmass um they're about neck and neck um uh, he stated that China is equal to the United States in territory resources, but with labor that is four times that of the U.S., China can be more productive, uh, but what China lacked was capital and talent. And that's relatively true. We've seen it a lot, especially during the COVID uh, lockdown. China was producing massive hospitals within a matter of two weeks. He believed that if if China could obtain these elements, industry would develop, and China would not only keep pace with the United States, but would be four times as productive if only China had the talents and the the capital that they need. So from there, we see the foundations of where Xi Jinping's strategy comes from. This wasn't just simply made up. It came from Sun Yat-sen in the 1890s. There's a blueprint there. There's a a guideline. Xi Jinping is just the culmination of Sun Yat-sen, Mao Zedong, and Deng Xiaoping. With Mao Zedong, in 1955, Mao had argued that it's China's ultimate goal to catch up and surpass the United States. And then that day, that when China surpasses the United States, then the Chinese people can, quote unquote, rest. But what China was essentially doing during this time between 1949 and 1972, they were leeching off the Soviet Union to leapfrog in their industrial capacity their military capabilities some sort of foreign direct investment from the Soviet bloc to ensure that they had laid down the foundations for their industrial output number one thing to know is that for the Chinese a lot of their foreign policy was constructed by military officials it's not really a civilian apparatus a military civilian uh relationship and China because quite frankly especially in modern day China the military is not the Chinese military it's the the military arm of the Communist Party of China so once you join the Communist Party of China's military you have to go through indoctrination phases you have to ensure that you tell the party line and you have full on obedience to the uh, to the president the chairman of, of the CPC which right now is Xi Jinping Mao Zedong essentially believed that China could only contribute to the cause of humanity by surpassing the United States, and that it was not only possible for uh, to, to surpass America, it was a grave necessity to surpass the United States, <laughs> and that if China could not surpass the United States, then China owed the world an apology if they were not able to do it because they were contributing to their potential. Mao even went even further and said that the United, if the United if China could not surpass the United States, then China deserved to have its membership in humanity revoked. That is genocidal. <laughs> like I'm just I'm just looking at it. What? No. But Mao was very adamant in indicating that China, by any means and all means necessary, has to completely reverse a hundred hundred years of humiliation as soon as possible. So, in 1958, after he made those remarks in 55, so three years later, he launched the Great Leap Forward, and everybody knows what happened with the Great Leap Forward you know it's to this day we still don't know how many people died from the great leap forward and quite frankly it's astounding that he actually not even just the human toll wise but even the economic side of um, the casualties coming from the great leap forward that in 1957 china's gdp portion global share of gdp was 5.46% but because of the the, the impacts of the Great Leap Forward, China's economy uh, global share of GDP shrunk to four percent in 1962, which is even lower than their global share of GDP in 1950, which is four point which was four point five nine percent. So he did much more harm than good. But yet, still, dem- still demanded that the ultimate goal remain to be to oust um, the United States from the the global hegemonic position. But you see, the spirit of China's overall strategy comes from what he stated in in 1964, and I quote. We cannot just follow the beaten track traversed by other countries in the development technology and trail behind them at a snail's pace. We must break away from conventions and do our utmost to adopt advanced techniques in order to make China a powerful modern socialist country and not too long a historical period. So the, You get this notion of the, the China dream, essentially, which the next 50 to 100 years. So he was talking about uh, he stated at least the, the the 50 to 100 year uh, quote in 1962. This is where Deng Xiaoping gets that idea from. And, and then he talks about the notions of acquiring modern technology, advanced techniques in 1964, which is something that Deng Xiaoping takes, but then infuses it with essentially state capitalism. Um, the Great Leap Forward was kind of from this notion that China has to break through traditional models and find a new path of development, wink-wink, Deng Xiaoping's Chinese uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. And the difference between Ding Xiaoping and Mao Zedong is that he never admitted that it was his goal, his overall goal, to essentially surpass the United States and replace the United States. He created in the 1980s his notion of three steps policy to be achieved by the 100th anniversary of the country's founding, which is basic sustenance for all, healthy growth, and overall revitalization of the nation. Of the of the nation. Ding's policy kind of is it literally is just a, a revamp, but actually putting into practice and application. What Yat-Sin was talking about: foreign direct investments, opening up the markets, opening up the economy. Uh, providing, you know, basic understandings of the global economic system, Um, investing further into talent, obtaining capital, evaluating the the faults of other countries, correcting them, and then implementing them in China in order to maximize their growth. Uh, But just for some statistical understandings of... uh, Kind of the, the situation of China. I'm not going to go through everything today because I want to make this full into a full on series through multiple because I also want to talk about the implications of geoeconomic principles, which is clearly also at play here with the rise of China as it was with the rise of the United States. In 1987, Paul Kennedy uh, made three predictions about global future global politics. At this time, remember, the Soviet Union was still around, uh, but he stated three things. No other countries would be able to enter the five-headed power arrangement shared by the u.s soviet union which is now russia china japan and the european economic community which is now the european Union. there was some speculation to incorporate india and that eventually um, however India is, is being classified as a junior partner rather than part of the the that five-headed or six-headed power arrangement Two, the balance of productive strength was moving away from the Soviet Union, the United States, and the European Union towards Japan and China. And China's current leadership would overtake Moscow, Washington, Tokyo, and the European Union. That was the indication back in 1987. Um, And Goldman Sachs had predicted that by the year, they put out a prediction that by the year 2027, this is before the COVID, um, fiasco. But Goldman Sachs had set out a prediction that China's economy will surpass the United States in size, and then by 2050, it would be twice the size of the U.S. economy. Um, And then, and then an author by the name of Martin Jacques, uh, who wrote When China Rules the World, The Rise of the Middle Kingdom and the End of the Western World, he indicated that the world possible choice for the for the or well, the worst possible choice where the United States will try to resist or contain China, which will only drag the world into a mire of a new cold war, well we're already there to being fully honest, we're already there. China has had that mindset since eighteen ninety six and regarding the United States. we're just now getting to that realization. This is I'm just gonna call it how it is. It's not necessarily the decline of America that we're seeing in this notion of the decline of Western ideals. The problem is that the West, and especially primarily the United States, has not updated their global, the geopolitical, the geoeconomic thinking in order to properly address the, the growing problem of, of China. That's the problem right there. We look at things from a antediluvian and anti- antiquated and a very outdated mindset. Where China has had this mentality since the 1890s, but has been able to adapt to make sure that it's able to essentially to construct parity with that of the United States. China understands the the, the relationship between ge- between economics and geopolitics. Is that when economic development increases, so too does geopolitical influence. And it has the the same inverse relation, or the same relationship, not really inverse, but when you have a negative economic development, you have a negative or decrease in geopolitical influence. That's, That's not rocket science. We have an increase in the economic base, economic potential. You have an increase in military posturing, procurement, and technology. We have a decrease in economic base, you have a decrease in economic posture, military posturing, and technology. It's nothing new, you know. China understands the economic interdependence as asymmetric vulnerabilities within our global system, and by threatening or being able to disrupt these supply chains, China understands the Achilles heels to the United States the same thing with the notions of debt being you know debt is power the United States couldn't be touched when ownership of U.S debt by global entities was very low and minimal but now that's changed with countries like Japan and Korea and China and a few other countries. Own American debt. So we have to really evaluate our strategic understandings of the world in which we're living in. So, going back to what I uh, was talking about, is that China is under five assumptions uh, that this is what will happen if and when they lead the world. The first thing is that when China becomes a global leader, It will be the outcome of struggle between the world's largest developed countries and prove that developing countries can become developed countries and surpass established developing countries so that's political clout when china becomes the world's leading nation it will be the outcome of struggle between the world's largest socialist nation and the world's largest capitalist nation they have economic clout um and it's kind of more into that. You know, for the past 200 or so years, Western nations have been the most prosperous nations in the world. Um, and if China is able to demonstrate its system is ideal, then that would demonstrate a better alternative to the Western construction. Um, when China becomes the world's leading nation, competition between Eastern and Western civilizations would take on new significance. So now you have a cultural a civilization, a, 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 an identity Cloud, when China becomes the world's nation, and will put an end to the perceived notions of, of the perceived western notions and now this is a historical context uh, racial superiority and we kind of see that with the early on uh founders of Anglo-Saxon based geopolitics um and German Scandin- Scandinavian German um based geopolitics that gave way to like lebensraum um racial uh categories of superiority um uh, which gave way to like the the Rwandan genocide and the um the internment camps of the the Japanese and near genocide or extinction native americans and um there's a history to that um and then on top of that, it would say essentially that um the overall in order for this to happen, China has to establish this notion of a national will, populism, nationalism. you see that in China now under Xi Jinping, this rejuvenation of the the China spirit, the China will, the Chinese state, and it's kind of, and that's based off of the notions of humans being naturally competitive. Um, and that it takes confidence uh, for nations to develop the strength in order to compete by any means necessary. Um, So that's kind of what I wanted to stop at today. Uh, I've been talking about 37 minutes. I didn't want to do something too, too long or too extraneous. But just overall that, overall understanding that we're entering to this era of geoeconomics. For a lot of the countries, geoeconomics has always been part of their, their overall strategy, their overall grand strategy. But it's something that the United States and primarily the West has to take more into consideration, that this era of 21st century geoeconomics is marked by borderless um, and transnational relations, non-state actors, um, as well as the importance of... Uh, harnessing of emerging technologies uh, being implemented for dual use purposes both civilian and military usages With that we have to also i want to talk about the next uh, session that i'll do we'll look at geoeconomics as both a strategy as well as an analytical tool uh for assessments to kind of, not just out not just to assess our capabilities our positions and our posturings but also the capabilities our position the capabilities the positions and the posturings of adversaries um that includes looking at the geo dimension uh dimension of strategy which is the economic base of uh national power um, the national powers then dealt with uh, from natural resources and the the will people through the institutions that's produced, um, as well as other type of socioeconomic development. Uh, and then with that, I'll leave on one note that the territorial character of sovereign states are not changing um, as they are bound by the physical geography. But our strategic imperatives of the state power, that's the part that's changing at rapid rates as technology is increasing. And with that, that is the dangerous part and that we're seeing an acceleration of tensions between the United States and China. Uh, for China, a strong domestic economy, economic base is essential to our successful geoeconomic posturing and a geopolitical st- uh, strategy. The United States and, and the West have to really get on this ballgame of reevaluating a comprehensive national security if we're going to contain China, let it alone you know, apply much more modern geoeconomic principles that is not overtly, heavily uh, reliant on the posturing of conventional military forces. Modern day warfare is not going to be based off of conventional battlefield uh, tactics. It's going to be played along the spectrum of peace and conflict, asymmetrical hybrid uh, warfare, whether that is through uh, proxies or cyber financial warfare. or even the notions of propaganda and disinformation, all of that has to be taken into consideration when you're redrawing the new understandings of warfare, and the United States has to prepare itself for that. Otherwise, these adversarial powers, and you know Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, Venezuela to an extent, they're going to be able to acquire the upper hand. And that's something that we know that we, in the West, in the United States, do not want. So with that, I'm going to end this, and I will be back. I'll see you next time.